And uh, just about eight days ago, our family welcomed our third little girl, uh, Fiona Evangeline, into the family. And so, yeah, thank you. So it's been uh, lots of joy, not lots of sleep, but lots of joy. Um, but we're, I'm grateful to be back here this Sunday and missed being here last week. And what I miss is just what we just did, singing together. You know, when we worship God, we do it because He's worthy and He deserves to be said that He's worthy. But when we worship, we're also actually, Scripture says, teaching one another through our songs. We're encouraging and reminding each other. And it was so good for my heart to hear you all sing with me about how great our God is and how good he is uh, towards us. Uh, And we need that because we're forgetful people. We forget who God is and what he's done for us. And forgetting is is a problem, right? I mean, you can think on a, a simple level. Like if you forget that homework is due, or if we forget that an assignment at work is due, that can cause some problems, right? Uh, but maybe if you forget something bigger, like you forget a family member's birthday, or you forget uh, an anniversary for a spouse, that causes a little bit more kind of relational problems, right? But what happens if we take it up another level and say, what if you forgot not just things, but people? Like Alzheimer's and dementia, where these devastating diseases leave us person healthy in body and yet unable to remember their loved ones. And that causes hurt. It's hard. But what if you couldn't even remember who you are yourself? Where you came from? Where home is? What you do? That'd be even harder. Another movie actually just came out in the Jason Bourne series, right? It follows a character that has that problem. He wakes up not knowing who he is, where he's from, what he's done, and people on his trail trying to kill him. Now, hopefully, none of you have that problem this morning. Uh, That'd be a really bad problem. But we all struggle with remembering. We forget. We forget who we are. And that's why one of the most repeat commands in Scripture is remember. God says, remember. Remember who I am. Remember. Remember what I've done. Remember who you are. Remember. Because we forget. We're prone to wander, as one of the hymns says. And so that's what 1 Peter wants to do for us. And as we spend these next several months in the book of 1 Peter, we're going to be reminded of who we are, who God made us, and what it means to live out that identity. In fact, uh, some letters, like 1 Peter, they'll actually tell you why they wrote the letter towards the end, which is really helpful figuring out what it's all about. So 1 Peter 5, verse 10, says this, And after you have suffered a little while... The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Right? So you have Peter saying, look, I want to remind you of what God has done. This is his grace to you. And I want you to stand firm firm in it. Stand from in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty. Remember who you are. Remember who God has made you and stand firm in that. That will help you live in this world because you live out who you think you are, right? And so Peter wants to remind us who we are so we can live who we truly are in Jesus. So let me pray and we'll jump into the passage this morning. Father, We come this morning as weak people. Some of us have minds that are easily distracted with many cares. Some of us have anxious or worried hearts. 
And some of us just come weary in body, whether it's lack of sleep or whether it's just our body wearing away. And yet we remember that your word says that you know our frame, that we are but dust, and you have compassion on us. And so I pray that you would help us this morning. Strengthen me to speak your words and only your words. And strengthen all of us to listen, to really listen, so we might be reminded of who we are and so live as you've called us to live. For your glory, amen. All right, well, let me read just the first two verses of 1 Peter. And we're going to really focus on these two verses this morning, but also kind of see how these themes play out throughout the book. So 1 Peter, verses 1, 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Well, as we begin this, our journey through 1 Peter, it's really good to remember that the Bible was written for us, but not directly to us, as the saying goes, right? So God is the capital A author of Scripture. So this word is meant for all of his people through all time. And yet, at the same time, God used one particular person in space-time history to write to a particular group of people in space-time history, and they're not us, right? And so we need to kind of understand who they are before we can understand how it applies to us. And actually, as, as we do that, I think we'll see how applicable this letter is for us. So we start with the author, right? Here's Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he says. And Peter is a guy who knew about identity issues, okay? As Peter is chosen, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, in the inner three, gets to see Jesus transfigured on the mountain. And on the night of his betrayal, Jesus says, all of you guys are going to betray me and abandon me. And Peter says, not me. You don't know me, Jesus. I know who I am. I'm going to stand with you, even if everyone else runs away. And then later that night, when he's nearby where Jesus is on trial, and people come up three different times and say, hey, uh, you've got an accent there. You're Galilean. Are you one of those Jesus guys? Peter goes, Jesus? I don't know. I don't know about him, man. Got the wrong guy. Don't know who he is. He knows what it is to have identity failure. But Peter also knows what it is to be reinstated by God's grace. Because Jesus, after the resurrection, comes to him, right? And welcomes him back in. And Peter becomes a great apostle and leader of the church, preaching to thousands of people. He stands up to the Jewish religious leaders and says, you can throw me in jail, make me suffer. I won't stop talking about Jesus. I'm with him. Peter knows what it is to have his identity restored and so live differently. So you can see why he might have a burden to write to Christians who are in a hard spot and say, I know what it is to be in a hard spot, and I want to remind you of who you are. And so he writes to these exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are these provinces in the area of Asia Minor or roughly the area of Turkey today. Christians there, and they are Christians who have been dispersed, right? They're of exiles of the dispersion. We don't know 100% sure which dispersion, whether it's from Jerusalem or from Rome or somewhere else. But the point of the matter is these Christians are not at home. They're exiles. They're not in the place where they began. They're outsiders, and they're feeling that. 
And in fact, as we read through the letter, we see that they're experiencing kind of what soft persecution. Not necessarily being thrown in jail or killed, but pushed to the margins. So in two, chapter 2, verse 12, Peter mentions that they, when they speak against you as evildoers, so the culture is calling them evildoers. Or in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They're being mocked. They're being maligned. They're viewed as evildoers. They're not in step with the culture, and they're being pushed to the outside, and they're feeling it. Does that sound a little familiar? So even though we are not in Pontus or Galatia or Cappadocia, even though this letter has been 2,000 years old, still, as God's people, we can relate to the fact that more and more in our culture, it feels like we're being pushed to the margins, that we're being viewed as outsiders and as strange and different and even evil in some of the ways we live and some of the beliefs we hold. And so we are feeling more and more like exiles. But the reality is this has been the position for the majority of followers of God for the majority of history around the majority of the globe. We're just joining the club finally. And maybe God's using this to remind us of who we really are. We're exiles. Now, word exile is also often translated sojourner or resident alien. The idea is someone who lives in a place, but that's not where their identity is found. Right? So they're living there, they work there, but that's not where their identity is. So I actually am a resident alien. If you haven't met me and know this, I was born and raised in Canada. I'm a Canadian citizen. So I live here in Madison. I work here. I pay taxes here. I seek the good of the place that I'm in. But when the World Cup of Hockey was on two weeks ago, I was not cheering for Team USA, okay? Sorry to break it to you. I was cheering for Team Canada, who won, by the way, um, because that's where my identity is still in many ways. I'm Canadian. That's how I identify. I'm a Canadian living here, and I love this country. It's great, but I still feel more like a Canadian than an American. And that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, look, you are not at home. It doesn't mean you don't seek the good of the place. In fact, when God's people were in exile in Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah in 29.7 said, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. There's goodness to being here and serving here, but it's not where our allegiance lies. Because for the Christian, our allegiance is not in a place, but in a person. Not a place, America, but a person, Jesus Christ. And it's because Jesus himself was in exile and a stranger that we are exiles and strangers as well. So Peter can write in chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, he says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So what Peter's saying, saying, look, if you're with Jesus, well, he was an outsider. You're going to share in his suffering and being an outsider. You'll also share in his glory when he returns. But if you're a Jesus person, then you're going to experience that. Now, here's the thing, right? 
I'm guessing none of you are like, sign me up to be the outsider, right? I want to be on the outside of all the social groups. I want to be excluded. I want to be marginalized. No one likes that by nature, right? No one. And that's why Peter is writing. He's saying, I want to encourage you because, no, you're not just exiles. You're not just on the margins. You're also something else, he says, to those who are elect exiles, elect or chosen. You're not just rejected, you're elect, you're chosen. Our identity, he says, is two-sided. On one side of our coin of our identity is stamped by the world, rejected. And on the other side of the coin of our identity, stamped by God himself, is chosen. That's who you are. Chosen and rejected at the same time, just like Jesus. Peter picks this up in chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to Jesus, a living stone by a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That's how Jesus was like. So if you're with him, you're going to share that. And it's important to grasp this identity so we can actually not be surprised by difficulty, that we can endure it and stand firm in it for God as we know our whole identity. And so Peter says, look, I want to root you really deeply into this identity to encourage you. So he draws out three kind of aspects of our identity, so to speak, that we can get rooted into. First, he says, who gave you your identity? Look at verse 2. We're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Who gave you your identity? Who chose you? God the Father, according to his foreknowledge. He chose you. Now, when you hear the word foreknowledge, I don't, know what, I don't know what you think of. Maybe you're thinking of knowledge of something that's about to happen ahead of time. Like, for example, maybe a friend of yours tells you, well, I know, um, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to ask this girl to marry me tomorrow. So you know, no, ahead of time, this person's going to propose. But that's not quite what the word's getting at. It's a little bit stronger than that. Because sometimes you know it's about to happen ahead of time because you're about to, so to speak, help cause it, like insider trading. That guy knows the stocks are going to rise tomorrow because he just ordered the merger. So he has foreknowledge because he's behind it. And that's why I think Peter's getting it here because he uses this word in Acts chapter 2. In a speech on Pentecost, when he's talking to the crowd, he says this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter's saying, look, you had a plan You went to kill Jesus, but by the way, that was according to the definite plan of God and his foreknowledge. He foreknew it was going to happen because he planned it. That's what Peter is saying. And so to summarize this, uh, one Bible scholar says it like this. He says, foreknowledge refers not simply to God's ability to know what is to occur, but also to the fact that what occurs does so in accordance with his plan. So think of it this way. There's an orphanage, and in that orphanage is a little girl named Joy. And at this moment, she feels rejected and alone. But a couple here from the Vine is thinking about adopting Imagine with me. And they pour over pictures from this orphanage, and they see Joy, and they say, we want to adopt her. Now, at that moment, does Joy know she's adopted? No. But is she going to be adopted? Yes. Because that couple has decided, they have foreknowledge of what's going to happen because they're deciding to 
adopt joy. And what happens when joy hears, finally hears on her end, that they've chosen to adopt her? Her name, joy, right? She goes from being rejected and alone to adopted and chosen just because a couple chose her. And that is what God is doing, says Peter. He says, you are elect just because God chose you. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. He didn't look at all the orphans and said, well, you're the best behaved orphans. I'll pick you. No, he just chose you out of his love and grace. Isn't that beautiful? Not earned. Not deserved. Just chosen according to his foreknowledge. Yeah, it's beautiful. So imagine with me now that you're at a family reunion, or you're at work, or you're at school, and you're feeling like the lone Christian there. And you're feeling like an outsider, and you're feeling the temptation to just want to run with the crowd. Imagine that moment God brings these words from Scripture back to your mind. No, you're not alone. You're chosen according to my foreknowledge. You're chosen just because I love you. That's what's true for the believer in Jesus. That is sometimes hard to believe, isn't it? And yet, God wants to say, whatever other voices are out there, Whatever other voice they're saying, this is who you are. This is who I say you are if you are in Christ. But then how do we get this identity? Well, Peter goes on to say, we aren't just chosen by God, but going on in verse 2, we're elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sorry, I skipped that verse. Thanks. Um, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Well, what does it mean to be sanctified by the Spirit? Well, I think Paul actually helps out here because he has a very similar verse in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. He says this, God chose you, right, same idea there, as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. It's the same phrase there, but this time they translate it through sanctification, which I think is really helpful because it gives us this idea that the Spirit is the agent that brings sanctification about. The Spirit's the one that's bringing this about. So he's making us sanctify. Well, what does that mean? It means to make holy. All right, well, what does it mean to make holy, right? Because we don't tend to use that language a lot. Well, basically, to make holy means to separate, to set apart. So you can make a day holy. So in Exodus, God says this, Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, I don't think God was saying, Yeah, Friday is a morally bad day, but I'm going to pick Saturday because it's, it's morally good. No, no. It's holy because he's setting it apart for special service to God. It's set apart. And not only can days be set apart or other objects, but people can be set apart. So God tells the nation of Israel, he says, next verse 19, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, if you read through Israel's history, they're not always morally better than anybody else, all right? That is definitely not the case. But they're still holy nation because God set them apart. He set them apart. And Peter now says in chapter 2, verse 9, we have this identity. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. You, Christian, have been set apart to be my people. So imagine that little girl, Joy, again in that orphanage. Maybe she's heard now that the couple's adopted her, but she's still in that orphanage. So she needs the couple to come and take her and actually bring her home. And that would separate her from the orphanage. And then once she's in that home, the couple's probably going to say, okay, I don't know what the rules were like in the orphanage, but now you're part of our family. And now you live our family way. And that's what we're called to do as well. When we're set apart by the Spirit, when we trust in Jesus, we're set apart by the Spirit. But then there's the call to now live in an ongoing, separate kind of way. So Peter can say in verses 11, after talking about being a chosen race, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain, be set apart from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conducts among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Saying, look, you've been set apart. Now live that way. Live set apart. Don't just live like the culture. And it's actually because we're going to live differently that we're going to feel like exiles. Because if you don't do everything that everyone else is doing, you're going to feel like an outsider. And it's because you've been chosen that you're an an exile. You need to see that connection. It's because we've been chosen that we're now exiles. They go together. They're tied together because the call of being chosen and set apart is a call to live differently. A lot of times, though, I think, here's what happens, right? We hear the first point. We're like, Chosen by God, loved, awesome, love that. God, could I also be a dual citizen? Could I be an exception? You know what I mean? Like, I want to, like, be loved and accepted by you, but then love to be, like, loved and accepted by the world, too. You know what I mean? Like, I'd like to live a life fully for you, but also live a life that the world's going to say, thumbs up, you're one of us. I kind of want to do both, God. I don't like this exile business. Can't I just be chosen and chosen? Can't I just be popular in the world well thought of in politics and work and everywhere else and also loved and chosen by you? That's what we want sometimes. But if you know anything about visiting another country or if you have a friend or maybe you're from another culture, you know that there are always differences in cultures, right? So the way they do hospitality in another culture is different than here. The way they think about marriage might be a little different. The way they think about parenting might be different. And I've got some friends where their parents immigrate from another country. And there's this tension, like, how do I become American without letting go of my previous identity, right? Because the more they adapt to America and America's ways of doing things, the less they are Indian or whatever nation they come from. So the more they come here, the more they adapt, the more they fit in here, the less they would fit in if they went back home. And that's what it's like for Christians. You've got to pick which culture. Are you going to adapt to the culture of this world and be all in? Or are you going to say, no, I want to hold on to my Jesus identity, which is going to be a little different. You have to pick. You can't be both. And if being chosen by God is meant to encourage you in your sense of exile, being set apart by the Spirit is meant to challenge you. Is your life a set-apart life? Do you actually sometimes feel like in exile? Because if you never feel like you're in exile, then maybe it's because you're not living like someone who's in exile. If you never feel different from the culture, then maybe it's because you aren't living different from the culture. 
And you know what they say, right? If it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and talks like a duck, what is it? A duck. If you look like the culture, walk like the culture, talk like the culture, then you're the culture. But if you walk like and talk like and look like Jesus, then you look like a Jesus person. And you can't be both. You cannot be both. Going back into chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Peter draws this out so clear. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Is your life different? Do you ever experience a little bit of maligning? Because you can have no confidence that you're a Jesus person, that you've been chosen by God if your life never shows any fruit of being set apart. Let me say that again. You can have no confidence that you are a Jesus person, that you've been chosen by the Father if your life has no evidence of being set apart. And I'm not saying perfection. I know some of you sometimes like freak out if you sin like one time. You're thinking you're losing your salvation. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is, is there a general pattern? Is there some evidence of living differently? And if there's zilch, if there's none, then that's a dangerous warning sign. If you're a Jesus person, you are called to be set apart because he has set you apart. But the thing is, there's good news here for us. We can't just live set apart, exile lives, unless we have someplace else where we feel accepted and feel like it's home. And that's why we have to keep those two points together. It's only if you know you've been chosen by God, loved by him, and have a home there that you'll ever be able to be okay being in exile in the culture. So we've been chosen by God, set apart by the Spirit. For what purpose? Well, Peter goes on. He says this, We're elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, if the for sprinkling with his blood was missing, this would be easy, right? Your purpose is obedience, obey, end of sermon, great. But they're they're there together. Our purpose is for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't been sprinkled with any literal blood in a while. Um, And that's probably a good thing. It's kind of a little weird. It doesn't feel normal to our culture, right? So we need to remember this wasn't written directly to us, right? It was written to people 2,000 years ago. And now we often like to explain things by making pop culture references, right? For the New Testament writers, they're always referencing the Old Testament. They're like, hey, if you want to know what Jesus is like, let me show you a picture of that from the Old Testament. So when we read phrases like this and we're like, we're not sure what this is, there's probably an Old Testament background here we need to understand. And Peter's picking up on Exodus 24, which is the story of of God, Yahweh, the Lord, calling Israel to be his nation. And the story really starts 4,000 years ago from our point, when God called one man, Abraham, and said, I want you to leave your home. You're going to be in exile. I want you to go to a land that you'll never own. You'll never really be at home. And I want you to have a kid. And they'll have kids. And they'll have kids until one day there will be one kid who will be the savior of the world and will bring blessing to all the nations. That's what I want you to do, Abraham. And his descendants end up in Egypt, in slavery, in a little bit of trouble. But God rescues them there through Moses. He chooses them and separates them out of the land, brings them to the mountain of the Lord in the wilderness. 
And then he says, look, we're going to have a ceremony symbolizing that we are joined into relationship. It's called a covenant, kind of like marriage, right? We have a ceremony showing this relationship being connected. And just like in our marriage ceremony, there are seals given, right? Something is given as a seal to prove the connection. For us, it's rings. Back then, they would offer sacrifices that sealed the deal. But also, it served as a warning. If you break the covenant, this is what will happen to you, whatever happened to these sacrificial animals. And so let's listen to the story now with that background in mind. Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8. And just listen for that theme of obedience and sprinkling with blood. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. You hear how Moses came and said, okay, here are all the rules. And they said, we'll obey. We promise. And they had the sacrifice, and they're sprinkled with blood to cleanse them, not physically, but spiritually, to enter into this relationship. But if you read the story of Israel, what you find out is they blew it. They really failed. They did not keep up their end of the covenant. And so what they deserve was what happened to those sacrificial animals, death. But God said, I still want a people to be in relationship with me. And so I'm not going to let the story end there. No, I'm going to do something crazy. I'm going to send my son. And he's going to come and live a perfect life on earth and be perfectly obedient to the covenant. And then he will offer himself up as the sacrifice to pay the penalty of the failure of my people. The perfect innocent one will die for disobedient people. Isn't that crazy? I mean, if you have a kid or a grandkid or a nephew or a niece, can you imagine offering up and that child willingly going to save people that hate you? That's what God did. And because Jesus died and rose again, now he says, I'm going to institute a new covenant. That old one didn't work. I'm going to do something new. Just like before, I'm going to draw people into relationship with me. Just like before, there's going to be a sacrifice to seal the deal. But it's my blood for a new covenant. And so if you trust in Jesus, you are welcomed into this relationship. And there is a cost to enter. It's free for us, but it costs the blood, not of animals, but of Jesus. That's what it costs. So when you read for obedience and sprinkled with his blood, what you should be thinking is God shows me and set me apart to enter a relationship with him that cost the very life of his son. 
And he wants me to now live out this relationship. I mean, think about that. If God really did choose you, if God really did set you apart and you didn't deserve any of this, and if God really did send his own son to die for you and welcome you into relationship, doesn't obedience to him, isn't that the most logical, joyful response? I just want to live as the son that I've been purchased to be. And that's what Peter's saying we're all about. And the good news is that just like we didn't earn our way into the family, we don't continually earn our way in. Jesus' blood, unlike the blood of lambs, which suffices for one time, suffices infinitely for sin. Every time we fail, if we come back to God in confession and repentance, God says, his blood covers that one too. Isn't that beautiful? That's who you are. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are a blood-covered, blood-bought people. Chosen, loved, and set apart from the world. Do you grasp this identity daily? Is this something you're meditating on and soaking in so that when... It's hard, and all the other voices come speaking to you. You can actually say, no, this is who I am. Are you constantly saying, who is God? What has he done for me? Who am I in light of that? And then how should I live? Or are you allowing other things to define what you're living for? Identity matters. It drives how you live. And I love this one story by an author named Andrew Peterson. It's called The Wingfeather Saga. And it really draws out the beauty of an importance of identity. And in this fictional fantasy land, the people are under evil oppressors. And if they step out of line at all, one of the things they love to do is come to a family's house with a black carriage and steal their children away by night. It's terrible. There's not much laughter or joy in the land. And these children, when they're captured by the black carriage, are brought to a factory where they're made to work and make knives and swords and other instruments of metal for their oppressors. And when they first arrive at the factory, the overseer greets them and asks them their name. And when they try to answer, the overseer smacks them and says, you have no name. You are a tool. Here's your bunk. This is your shift. Get to work. And just enough food to keep you alive, and there's no daylight in the factory. As day passes day and the kids work away and they experience the overseer's whip and the blisters on their hands and the darkness, they just forget. It's easier to forget who they were. They forget their parents. They forget where they're from. They don't look one another in the eye. There's no talking. There's no laughter. There's no singing. They're just a tool. And some of them don't just forget, but they actually say, well, if this is what life is like here, then I'm going to accommodate myself to it. There's special perks if you're willing to be a supervisor and help the overseer keep the other kids in line. And so they abandon their old identities for that. And that's the way it is. Until one day, a boy is captured named Janet. And when the overseer calls him a tool, he says to himself, I'm not a tool. My name is Janet. And I'm loved by my mother, Nia, and my, my grandfather, Podo. And I have a sister and brother that love me. I'm not a tool. I'm a boy. And he holds on to that identity. And as he feels the blisters on his hands day after day and feels the whip and, 
And all these terrible things are happening. He keeps feeding his mind with memories of his family and their faces and who he is. And he finds a girl that he knew from his old village, Sarah. And he helps her remember who she is. And a light goes on in her eyes. She remembers. And then her light spreads. And some of the other kids begin to see it. And they see the light in her eyes and secretly come to her and ask her. And they remember who they are. And slowly the light of their identities fills that factory. And the darkness could not quench it. And the whips and the blisters could not end it. And because they remembered who they were, it changed everything. This is what God wants to teach us through First Peter, friends. It sometimes feels like we are in a dark factory. And we feel the blisters of life. And sometimes the cruel whip of suffering. And we have all these other voices telling us who we are. But he wants to remind us of who we really are chosen by God, set apart by the Spirit, blood-bought into relationship by the Son. And the light of that gospel identity can break into the darkness and shape how we live in this world for good. Identity drives how you live. Do you know who you are in Jesus? Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that though there are many voices from our past, from our present, our own voices that often speak lies of who we are, your voice rings out loud and clear like a light in the darkness. And so I pray for many people here this morning that are forgetting who they are and are suffering and are discouraged, that you would remind them of who you see them to be. And that would encourage them to live for you. And I pray for those this morning who don't necessarily believe in you, Jesus, who aren't a follower of you, that they would have heard something here this morning that draws them and says, I want that. I want to be a part of that family. Father, thank you for loving rebellious sinners. Amen. Matthew 26, 